Um, it's uh, a great time for many people to go to church and hear the gospel. So I hope that you'll take that opportunity to invite them. And so if you're here this morning um, and uh, you're not a Christian or you're struggling with the Christian faith, you don't know what the gospel is, you, but you're interested in Christianity and uh, you want to know more about Christianity, I have a dinner reservation for you. So next Sunday after Easter Sunday, uh, at my house, my wife is a great cook, and she's going to cook. I got four te- four seats open. So if you're not a Christian, trying to understand the gospel, have questions about the Christian faith, you're invited to my home. I got four spaces after service. Come up and reserve your spot, and just tell me so we can prepare for you. Uh, and I hope that the rest of the members of the Restoration Church will do something similar to that. So we want to take this opportunity so that people can uh, ask questions about the Christian. Uh, faith. Um, but yeah, let me pray for us in advance of opening up God's Word. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, God, that You've spoken to us, that You've not remained quiet. That we can open it up and we can hear Your voice. And so, God, I pray that all of us would submit ourselves to You as we submit ourselves to Your Word, knowing it's good. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if God were to grant you one wish to bring healing or peace to the world, how and where would you use it? So, you can't say sin, since Jesus has already dealt with that. Uh, But if you had the opportunity, God gives you one wish, you can use uh, that wish to bring peace, to bring healing to the world. How would you use that? Some people would use it to destroy guns. Some people would use it to destroy weapons or uh, actually diseases, maybe. Another would use it to bring food and water to all people. Um, Another person might use it to destroy racism. All good uses. So here's how I would use that wish. I would use that wish to ask the Lord to bring peaceful, loving, caring, devoted, healthy marriages. I'd use it in marriages. I'd ask God to bring peace, wholeness, health, love to every single marriage. And I'd ask the Lord to allow me to include uh, all the relationships that lead up to those marriages. I think he would give me that part of it. And here's why I'd ask it that way. A large majority of the problems that we face in the world today have resulted from unhealthy marriages or unloving marriages. See, if every romantic relationship led to and was sustained by a healthy marriage... Just think about all the things that would change. No more divorce. No more single parent homes, which would put a dent, a large financial, a dent in the financial constraints. Sexuality would be redeemed and made beautiful. Sexual abuse would be largely, un, would, would be largely checked. The current epidemic of loneliness would be pushed back. Abortion would be significantly scaled back, if not eradicated. All problems relating to children would be largely erased. And they, uh, they would be raised as a result because of their being raised in healthy families. Uh, education, financial provision, the presence of worth and care alone would solve all kinds of current crises. I could go on of what healthy marriages would do if we had that wish, but I think you get the point. And those of you that were raised like I was in a healthy marriage, you know the benefit. And those of you that were not raised around healthy parents that are operating in healthy marriages, you also know what I'm talking about here. And so here's what that tells us. If we get marriage right, if we could see uh, what marriage is and what marriage does, just consider the significant changes that we might see. 
in the world towards peace and wholeness. And likewise, if we get marriage wrong, we introduce a thousand problems into the world. And so this, friends, is exactly why the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. The Bible, or God even, understands marriage is that important. It is the basic building block of civilization, so it should come as no surprise to us that marriage is so incredibly challenged, confused, or misunderstood in our modern society. In a broken world full of evil and full of the presence of the evil one, we would expect to see marriage attacked in order to make the world wobblier, more wobblier than it already is. And let me show you that just from the passage that we'll look at this morning in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. Go ahead and put your uh, finger on the very first book 2 of the Bible, Genesis 1. We're going to uh, work off that in a little bit as well. But I want you to notice, just stand and look at how the book of Ephesians is organized. You'll notice from Ephesians 1 to 3, God is talking about how in Christ He's bringing healing to the world, heaven to earth. And you'll notice uh, that he rehearses those things. And then there's a transition in chapter 4 to work out this calling for those of us that are in Christ to then live it out. And then in chapters 4 and 5, you'll notice there's all kinds of warnings of, the, of how the world has become hardened to the truth and how we need to be warned to stand against it, how we need to walk in love and in wisdom because we live in a present evil age. We need to not believe deception and things of the like. And then we get this passage. What comes next in Ephesians 5.22 to down to 6.4, actually 6.9, is marriage, family, and work. And then right after that comes more warnings about the present evil age to put on the armor of God. We war against this present evil age. So all around these three things that we'll look at over the next, actually four weeks, marriage, family, and work, Paul understands they're couched inside of the recognition that the evil one is trying to get into these basic building blocks of the civilization to mess with them so as to not see healing in the world, peace in the world. And so we not only need to get marriage right because by it we get a lot of other things right, but we also need to get marriage right because the evil one knows the same truth. And he is going to do all in his power to deceptively bring down healthy marriages and families. And so it is critical for us to understand what marriage is and what marriage does. And so friends, every sermon is important, but this one is especially important because there's a lot at stake here. And so if you are married, or if you want to be married, or you know someone that is married, that should be everybody, I encourage you to pay close attention. Deception, deceitfulness, and confusion reign. So may we submit ourselves to the good teaching of Jesus. Ephesians 5, verse 22, says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Again, two points this morning, what marriage is and what marriage does. That second point we'll see, uh, we'll break that out into the two roles. And what we will see is that marriage is a mirror of Christ and his relationship to the church. Now, as soon as I read Ephesians 5, I'm going to ask you to flip back to Genesis 1. Because in order for us to understand what's going on in Ephesians 5, we have to see how God established marriage. And that's where we find it. So we flip back into Genesis. And when we go in there, we see this is the beginning of creation, Genesis 1. And we as Christians believe that God made the world and he made the world to reflect him, to image him to the world. Mankind was the cornerstone of his creation. And this is going to be critical for us to understand when we talk about submission in a second. But it's important to note That when he made mankind, he made one humanity in two distinctions, male and female. And both male and female were both equally created in the image of God. One was not more and is not more important than the other. Specifically, men are not superior to women. In the same way that Christ is not inferior to the Father or the Spirit inferior to the Son. Christians believe there is one God in three persons, sometimes called the Trinity. They are one in essence, but three distinct persons. And so male and female reflect this notion of God who is equal in essence, but distinct in person. That brings us to chapter 2 of Genesis, where the story rolls back to how and why the female was made. Uh, This is critical for us to understand. We see from Genesis 2.18 that the Lord saw that it was not good for the man to be alone. Now, to be clear, he was not lonely. It's important that you get that right. But he did need help to fulfill God's mission to reflect his glory to the world. And so the Lord created woman to be a helper to the man in their work of displaying or imaging the glory of God to the world in marriage. Now, some ladies, I understand, may not like this word helper. They don't like that word helper. But it's important that you understand that exact same word is ascribed to God in numerous times of the Bible. Helper in no way uh, refers to inferiority. Like the Trinity, it's referencing the role that women play in marriage. They're helpers. And that's the context of them being helper. God creates the woman. She, he gives, uh, the, gives the woman to the man in marriage so that as we see in Ephesians 5.31, quoting Genesis 2.24, a husband can leave his father and mother and the two make one flesh. So the physical union of a man and a woman are picturing a spiritual reality that God designed. Oneness. Just as God is one. And so marriage, it's important for us to get this right. Marriage is God's idea. Before we say anything else about marriage, we have to acknowledge that reality. Marriage is designed by God. Marriage is a creational ordinance. When one man and one woman come together to make one flesh under God, in order to promote the greatness of God to the world. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And by creational ordinance, if you're wondering what I mean by that, I mean that marriage is part of creation, just like the sun, the moon, the trees, the dirt are part of creation. 
So this is why, as Christians, we believe that you don't even have to be a Christian in order to be understood as married in the eyes of God. Marriage is a creational ordinance where one man and one woman come together to make one flesh under God in order to promote the greatness of God to the world. But it's also important that we understand the end or the goal of marriage. It's designed to promote the glory of God in the world, to image God. Marriage is designed by Him, therefore its aim is Him. Specifically, now look back, go ahead and flip back over to Ephesians 5. We see there in Ephesians 5 verse 32, this mystery. That is, it says there, marriage refers to Christ and the church. So think about this, guys. Even in the Garden of Eden, from the very beginning, Marriage was and is always intended by God to picture the relationship of Christ to His people, the church. And so for that reason, marriage is a covenant to God and to one another in that marriage for the ends of promoting the glory of God in the earth. Now listen, I realize I realize that not every marriage sees that as the goal, but that is its intended purpose. Marriage is supposed to be this real-time parable or picture or movie of the love of Christ to His people. The husband, as we will see, represents Christ, loving and serving her. The wife represents the church, helping, submitting, respecting the husband. And its nature is covenantal. It's bound by God to picture God for the good of the husband and the wife to then enjoy God. And so this is why a marriage ceremony is designed the way that it is. A wife in white representing the cleanness of the church. The husband goes and takes her to the altar to make a covenant that is sealed by a kiss. Noting the intimacy between the two. So marriage then is not a contract. Listen, it's not a contract to declare one another's present love in order to fulfill each other's happiness. That understanding of marriage, which is increasingly common, cannot possibly bear the weight of its end, of its goal. It can't. Tim and Kathy Keller say this so well in their book, Meaning of Marriage, of which I would commend to you. They say, quote, Both men and women today want a marriage in which they can receive emotional and sexual satisfaction from someone who will simply let them be themselves. They want a spouse who is fun, intellectually stimulating, sexually attractive, with many common interests, and who, on top of it all, is supportive of their present goals and of the way they are living now. A marriage based not on self-denial but on self-fulfillment will require a low or no-maintenance person who meets your needs while making almost no claims on you. Simply put, today people are asking far too much in the marriage partner. Unquote. Friends, this explains why divorce rates are so high and why cohabitation rates are so high. People are oriented towards marriage in the same way that our culture teaches us to be. It's mainly for me and how I feel today, not for them, not for the glory of God forever. Consequently, people are quick to get out of marriage and slow to get into it. They have placed demands on their marriage partner that only God can fulfill. So seen in this light, we can begin to get a glimpse at how marriage, as designed by God, is actually liberating. Not oppressive as some would have us to believe. Jesus says that the fulfillment of the law is loving God and loving neighbor. Uh, This is the fulfillment of the law because it reflects what God has been doing from all eternity. Loving himself since he is the highest and best of all things. And loving his neighbor, father, son, and spirit. 
And so if you see marriage as anything other than the design of God to display His glory and help one another in that great task, you will place a burden on marriage that you'll never be able to bear. I want you to notice, look down in Ephesians 5, I want you to notice those is statements of verse 23. Note that it says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and is himself its Savior. In other words, Scripture does not put this notion up for debate. It simply is this way. Just like gravity is the law. You can choose to reject gravity, but if you step off of a a skyscraper, you're left to deal with the consequences. Likewise, you can choose to reject God's design of marriage, but you have to face the consequences, whatever they are. So that's critical, again, for us to understand. See, our country has recently attempted to redefine marriage to include man-to-man or woman-to-woman, But friends, you simply cannot define or redefine marriage any more than you can redefine air, water, or the law of gravity. Nor can you redefine the roles of Christ to His church. These things simply are. They are part of God's good creation that, again, He calls very good. Now, I recognize that this kind of language would be seen in some places as hate speech. But friends, look back to Ephesians 5, 2, and 3. It says there that we walk in love. And sexual immorality is not said to be love. Therefore, I love you when I hold up God's intention for sex and marriage. In other words, this is me trying to love you. The more that we seek to understand and live inside of the design of God, the more that we will know the fullness of His love and His life, even if it doesn't accord with our base desires. And what we see here is that marriage is designed by God to picture Christ and His love to the church as it is revealed in one man and one woman covenanting together as one flesh under God for the glory of God and the good of one another. This is what marriage is. Now before we turn to what marriage does, we need to do a little work. Right after Genesis chapter 2. What we see there in Genesis chapter 3 is the consequence of of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. So Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, therefore God has separated Himself from that sin, and there are consequences, as I referenced before, to them rebelling against that. And one of the consequences that we see, there's consequences to the man, that namely his work will be hard and toilsome. Uh, But also, you'll notice in Genesis 3, let's pick up, you'll see it behind me, what the consequences to the wife are. It says there, I, the Lord, will surely multiply your your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, the mothers in the room give a hearty amen, right, to the pain in childbearing, right? But I, yes, amen. But I wonder, amen, but I wonder, I wonder how much we think about the second part of that curse. The portion about how a wife will desire her husband. Now you might be wondering, what does that mean exactly, Nathan? Well, if we look over to a Genesis 4-7 right after this, you actually see exactly the same phrasing and we, help, we come to understand what that curse means. In Genesis 4-7, here we find the counsel of the Lord to Cain where the Lord says, sin is crouching at the, desor- at the door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. In other words, sin is desirous to rule over Cain. So in the same way, the wife's desire will be to rule over her husband. 
Now remember, as we'll discuss in a moment, in Ephesians, we see that the husband plays the role of Christ as the head of the church in the marriage, and the wife plays the role of the church. Christ, Husband is Christ, wife is church. So here the Lord says that part of the curse is that the woman will seek to unseat Christ on the throne as she fights to unseat the leadership of her husband. In other words, what he's saying is there's going to be this power struggle in marriage. And that sets the stage, friends, for what Paul is doing in describing the roles in marriage. He's helping us see how heaven and earth are coming together in Christ. He's helping us see how Jesus is reversing the curse in marriage and reestablishing peace and order at the most fundamental level. And so here we go. This is what marriage does. We'll take a look at the wife first, then the husband. You see down there in verse 22 and 24, the wife submits. We'll see again in a moment, the wife submits and the husband will love, but the wife submits and respects the husband as to the Lord. The wife submits and the husband and respects the husband as to the Lord. Now listen, guys, let me say this briefly. This is why preaching consecutive exposition through books of the Bible is good for churches. Because it forces the preacher and it forces you guys to deal with stuff that we wouldn't rather deal with. We could just avoid it if we just stayed on topical series all the time. Right? This stuff is countercultural, and so just reading through books of the Bible and preaching through them helps us expose the corpus of teaching and come into uh, what we need to understand. And so listen, if you're visiting the church today, all right, and you walk in and you're like, my goodness, this is a sermon to walk into. Uh, listen, I want you to know we don't apologize for God's good and beautiful word. But at the same time, you should know this is not some hobby horse for us, all right? Uh, we are working through the book of Ephesians, and by God's good providence, we find ourselves in Ephesians 5, to 33. So this is what marriage does. In order for marriage to picture Christ and the church, a wife submits and a husband loves. This is the way that the curse of Genesis 3.16 is practically rever- reversed by working out these roles and responsibilities. We're going to start with the wife submitting. It's not hard to see it. It's very clear there, verse 22-24. We see the same thing in Colossians 3. We see it also in 1 Peter 3, which we'll come back to in a moment. And this is not even to mention Jesus' affirmation of the design of marriage uh, from Genesis in Matthew 19. In other words, I say this because this doctrine is not some niche doctrine of the New Testament or the Bible as a whole. It's coming up often. And it's coming up often because it's recognized that it's misunderstood, that it's attacked. And so, as I see it, when we read through these notions of submission, we have one of three options in this passage. Either we reject it, which would require us to then pace in limbo other core doctrines of the Christian faith, or we can sidestep it, sort of getting into the history behind it, try to explain it away, or we believe it as God's good gift. And I believe, as I know most all of you do, that this is God's good word for us. As uh, it says in Second Timothy, this word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we would be complete. And let me also say right up front that I recognize that some of you have been exposed to abuse as a result of this doctrine. Uh, some of you also um, are just uncomfortable with it, even though you know it's true, it's just hard for you to hear. And so I want you to know that it is my intention to do as Paul instructed right there in Ephesians 4.32. To be gentle and tender-hearted. Be kind to you and tender-hearted. 
And you should know also it may be helpful that I spoke to about six or eight other ladies in the life of this church just to try to listen to them, hear what questions and those kinds of things in order to kind of deliver this to you. So what's going on here? What does it mean? What is meant by submission? Uh, well, let's start by recognizing that every single one of us submits every single day. If you stopped at a red light this morning, you submitted. Right? Uh, if you have a boss uh, and you follow their leadership, you submitted. If you're working on paying your taxes, you are submitting. And as well you should, as Jesus tells us. So our problem is not with submission per se, but the reality is we still can easily find this notion of su- submissive submission offensive, I think in large part because our society teaches us individualism. It's hard. So let's begin what's, uh, what Paul is not saying here. What it is meant uh, by this is, uh, what is, he, what is submission not? i got six things here. Submission, as we have already seen, does not mean that women or wives are inferior to men or husbands since all are created in the image of God. We know that's not what submission is. Secondly, submission also does not mean that women or wives have to submit to men. Maybe you've never heard that before. It's not what the Bible teaches. Just look at the text. It's very specific. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That's exactly what it says. And also, I'd like to add that men, like women, are often told to submit as well. Just look back up in verse 22, right before this. We're supposed to submit to each other in the life of the church. We submit to government, Romans 13. We submit to pastors, Hebrews 13. We submit to bosses, as we will see just after this in in Ephesians 6. But thirdly, submission does not mean that wives don't have a voice in marriage. When we read the Proverbs 31 wife, we see her considering fields and buying them. We see that strength and dignity are her clothing. And as it says in Proverbs 31, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Fourthly, submission also does not mean that the wife can't voice her struggles. Just read about any psalm and you hear a good and submissive psalmist submitting to the Lord, yet struggling with what's going on, voicing that to the Lord. And yet they always land in the right place. Fifthly, submission does not mean that the wife must follow all of the husband's leadership. This is critical. Look in verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's the context, by the way, of the in everything of verse 24. Submit as to the Lord in everything the Lord would have you to do. In other words, a wife should never, 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 never submit ever to a husband that is leading their wife to sin. And sixthly, lastly, submission does not mean that your husband is omnicompetent. Uh, I have to laugh at this because I am very not omnicompetent and I know this, which is why I need the help of my wife. Um, wives need, or husbands need their wives. Again, that's that context of Proverbs 31 woman, uh, wife, opening her mouth with wisdom. I, I don't even have to convince you wives of this. Your husband, you know your husband needs your help. So, yeah. So what is submission here? Here's my working definition. Definition of submission. Submission is the strength to follow leadership. The strength to follow leadership. Or to infuse this with the gospel, submission is the strength to follow Christian leadership. So let's break that apart for a moment. Submission is often associated with weakness. But that could not be any further from the truth. Submission demands great strength. 
We see that in the psalmist struggles. He always lands in the place following the Lord, but it's hard. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane where Christ is struggling and he prays that he would work out the will of God. It's hard. It requires great strength. We'll talk about that more in a second. But also submission demands strength to follow. To follow means to come behind another. Some uh, definitions of submission use the word yield there. The strength to yield to Christian or godly leadership. I prefer the word follow because it's a more active word. When a car yields, it's sort of waiting on other cars. But the word follow here means we've got to pick our feet up and get behind that leader. And as to leadership, we see that the husband holds the position of leadership in the marriage when it says that he is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And so the Lord has given the role of leadership to the husband. We'll talk about more the nature of that leadership in a moment. But for now, wives, you should know that you are not ultimately, listen, you are not ultimately submitting to your husband. You are ultimately submitting to your precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Never lose sight of that. Your devotion to Christ is revealed to your following your husband. Your husband is not the ultimate head. Jesus is. Your husband makes mistakes. Jesus doesn't. Jesus is worthy of your devotion. And so submission then is the strength to follow Christian leadership. Now, just briefly, some of you have asked, uh, when I was asking questions this week, a question that came up often is uh, this correlation of the husband to Christ and his saving her. That can be a little confusing, but Paul, remember, has already dealt with how people are saved in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. He's sort of moved on from that argument, talk about how, how it's applying here. So he's not inserting some new teaching about how wives are saved. He's talking about the stations of the spouse. He's helping orient their roles. Christ is the head of the church, as is evidenced by his saving her. So, since the husband plays the role of Christ in the marriage, he is the head or the leader in that relationship. So we've talked about what submission is and what it isn't. Now let's drill down to why it's there. This is what marriage does. The wife submits, respects her husband. But why? Why? Well, our answer to this places an astounding privilege and responsibility upon the shoulders of wives. Paul says that the submission of wives to their husbands is the visible manifestation of the redeemed to the Redeemer. When you look at a wife submitting to her husband, you are looking into the face of the collective redeemed following their beloved Redeemer by grace. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So you can see why we should include strength in our definition of submission. This demands the power of the Spirit of God. It is a high, high, high calling. The way that you treat your husband, sisters, is the reflection of the way the church is to treat Jesus. What an enormous responsibility. You just think about this. Think about the way that you speak to your husband. Think about the way that you talk about your husband to your kids. Think about the way that you talk about your husband to your friends. Those that are when when he's not around. Think about the way that you serve him. And as verse 33 says, respect him. Think about the ways that you relate to him when he fails. Now the reality is, Jesus again never fails, but your response to his failures still illustrates the church's relationship to Christ in those moments. Wives, insofar as you do this admirably, admirably, you speak loudly, loudly about the worth of Christ. 
And you speak loudly about the beauty of God's children following their precious Lord. And not only does it speak a word to the world, but I want you to notice something else. You also speak a word to the Father Himself. See behind me, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to what it says. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So you display the redeemed to the world and you are precious in the sight of God when the strength of, in the strength of His might when you follow His leadership. This, is, this privilege and this responsibility is astounding. And so wives, future wives, rehearse these realities for yourselves. Be reminded that you are a picture of the church. And of course, we should add here that you are also a picture of Christ who submitted Himself to the will of the Father. Enduring scorn and shame on the cross so that he might purchase the preciousness of his wife, the church. You illustrate Christ as well as the church, ladies. So be encouraged. Your calling is high and your God has equipped you to work this out. Listen, I realize this task is hard. Your husbands are not perfect. They make mistakes. And I know they make mistakes because I am one. We can be passive, we can be disinterested, we can be downright sinful. And it's important, sisters, that you go back to then to these passages in order to remind yourself of these things. And so if you're struggling to know how best to do this, listen, reach out to your sisters and ask them how they're doing this. Reach out to us, your elders, so that we can talk and shepherd you in those moments to do this more specifically. But through all of it, never forget that this is the amazing role that you get to play. And also, just a word to the single ladies, if you desire to be married, I want you to know that this is what you're getting into. Marriage is not merely about enjoying another man's company. I trust and hope you would. Your interest in marriage has to include an understanding and an interest in working out this role with another Christian man. So you have to ask yourself, do you have confidence that this man knows the Lord and is willing and able, though imperfectly, to lead you as to the Lord so that you can submit to Him as the church submits to the Lord. You have to evaluate that. And single brothers, if you desire to be married, you're looking for a woman that you have confidence is willing to lean into this beautiful and yet difficult role. It's not just do you like each other, nor is it just are you Christians. The responsibilities have to be evaluated. And listen, get wise counsel about your evaluation of these things. And not only get the counsel, but listen to the counsel. And you also need to evaluate the role and the responsibility of a husband. For as high as the calling is for the wives, the husbands may even be more difficult. So we've seen what marriage is. We've seen in part what marriage does in the role of the wife. So now we see what marriage does in relation to the husband. Namely, the husband loves as Christ loved the church. The husband loves as Christ loved the church. Now just take a, look, take a moment and look at the length of the passages addressed to the wives and the length of the passages addressed to the husbands. Do you notice that? In terms of numbers, we got three and a half verses towards the wives, about nine and a half verses towards the husbands. 
Why would I point that out? And secondly, why would the husband's role come after the wife's role? I believe that the Bible is ordered in a particular way, and that's not coincidental. I believe not only the length of the passages to the husbands, more, much more than the wives, and also the placement after submission to the wives, I think this reflects the heart of God. See, while the Lord recognizes that part of the curse is for the wife to desire the leadership of the husband, God also recognizes that the call to submit and respect the husband places her in a vulnerable position. Therefore, there is a lengthier treatment of the responsibilities of the husband because the Lord knows not only that the wife's role is hard, but he also knows that the husband's role could take advantage of the wife. He could take advantage of the woman that he died to save and bring to himself. And so there is more instruction to the husband and it follows the calling of the wives because the Lord knows that in order for the curse to be reversed and an image of glory to be produced, the husband is going to have to tread very, very carefully. And so husband, the mess, husband's in the room, potential husband's in the room, the message is clear. Your role, my role, our role is to love our wives. And that word for love does, it does not, it's not talking about eros love, erotic love, nor is it talking about phileo love, just be sort of friendly with them. That's that, the word that's being used there is agape love, that uniquely Christian word. Husbands unconditionally, sacrificially, selflessly die to yourselves. So as to see life, beauty, splendor rise up out of the soul of your wife. It has often been said that if more husbands love their wives like this, the stigma that is attached to submission would wither. And yet marriage so frequently suffer because men are passive, they're selfish, they're prideful, they're hurtful, they're oppressive, or they're just plain neglectful. And if that's not bad enough, There are some people that call that kind of behavior masculinity. And folks, that's blasphemy. That is blasphemy. And it is wrong. It should be warred against that kind of behavior. There's no patience for it. Jesus Christ was the most masculine man that ever walked the face of the earth. And just take a look at how he treated his wife, the church. Verse 25, Christ gave himself up for her. Translation, He gave up the praise of the angels and took on the form of a child. He was raised and walked the earth and was willing to take on hunger and thirst. He was willing to be mocked, battered, beaten, and bruised. He was willing to be abandoned. He was willing to be crucified, murdered as an innocent man just so that his wife might know and enjoy his love. That she might be forgiven and brought and made clean. That's what it means to be a man. Die to yourself so that your wife would live. Show the world what God is like. That he might sanctify her by the washing of water with the word. That he might, that is, set her apart. Make her clean as he washed her with the words of God. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. That she might, that is, be beautiful. First Peter 3, right after this, verse 7 says, Honor your wives. Just think about that moment, if you've ever been to a wedding. That moment when you're, when you know it's time for the wife to walk out. The doors are closed. We all know the moment is upon us. And the doors open up. Most everyone, most everyone has not seen her yet. And the second those doors open, everybody looks back, they stand, they look back, and they see the radiant glory of the wife. They all gush at her because of her beauty. 
This day is going to be a day that sort of redounds into future days that will be seen as, uh, I think, are reflective of the eternal beauty of the wife. And as she walks down that aisle and everyone stares at her, she walks down in a white dress down that aisle. The future husband then goes and takes her. And they, husband-to-be, takes her and brings her up to the pastor that's holding the word. That's the image. They make that covenant with each other and they become one. That's the image Paul has here. This is what Jesus has done for us, the redeemed, the church, his bride. He has, by the grace, by grace through faith, he has washed us in the word. He washes us in his blood. He gave up his life so that this moment could happen. Not just this moment, but so that this moment would transcend time and become eternity. That moment of a wedding ceremony is to be picturing the eternal moment of the redeemed. That we might be beautiful. That beautiful, radiant bride. Full of splendor. This is what the love of Christ has done for us that believe. And this is what your love must, 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 must be done, husbands. This is the kind of love you have to have. Paul goes on in verse 28, adjusting metaphors here. He moves into the notion of the body, of the one flesh. As we've already noted, he quotes Genesis 2 and verse 31 there. When a husband and wife consummate their marriage, they do so in order to symbolize that they are no longer two but one. Just as we are one in Christ. And so the metaphor goes, husbands, when you love your wife, you love your own body. Verse 29, and no one ever hated his own body, his own flesh. And to me, this language crystallizes what comes next. This language crystallizes the love of the husband. Verse 29, he nourishes it and cherishes it. That's what Christ does for the church. He gave himself up for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. He gave himself up for us to make us beautiful. He gave himself up for us so as to nourish and cherish our bodies back to health. And that is your great privilege, husbands. When you hurt her, you hurt yourself. When you help her, you help yourself. Your job is to show your wife Jesus' sacrificial love. Your job is to see life, redemption, splendor rise up out of your wife. And as this happens, the world will take notice. And they will ask, why is your marriage like this? And you will say, because this is how Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. You will testify to the excellencies of Christ and the beauty of His kingdom. Husbands are those interested in being husbands or those who are in community groups with husbands or ladies that are evaluating other men to be husbands. This is the standard. This is the role. This is what marriage does for the husband. He sacrificially loves washing her in the water of the Word. Guys, when I die and stand before the throne of judgment, I want my father to look at my wife and say, Well done, son. Well done. And when my wife dies, I want her to be able to be presented before the throne with fullness of splendor because I loved her sacrificially. Washing her in the water of the Word. I think about these things. You've got to be thinking about this stuff. It's that important. I want my wife to be more full of splendor than she was on January the 21st, 2003. We have to want to love our wives in this way more than we want good sex for our wives with our wives. We have to want these things more than we want great vacations and more meaningful jobs. 
We've got to want this more than we want even profitable ministries in the church. Since, brothers, you can't even be an elder of the church unless you get this right. That's how important it is. Healthy marriages are the concrete slabs of the buildings of the world. Everything good that rises up out of the world is built on top of them. That's how God made the world. And that's why the Bible begins with marriage. Because it's that important. And that's why the Bible ends with a marriage. Let me read you the final verses. Some of the final verses of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready, It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, linen bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Wives, submit to and respect your husbands, knowing that you get to display Christ's submission to the Father and the church's submission to the Son. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Give yourself up for her. Wash her in the water of the Word. Uh, Maybe over the course of this next week, we'll put some more information about practically how you can do that. You picture the love of Christ, brothers. Present her in the fullness of splendor. And know that the evil one is trying to disrupt this beautiful picture. And so if you've gotten this wrong, might I encourage you to tell your spouse today, don't put this off. On the way home today, or at some point, ask their forgiveness. And have a conversation about how you can more accurately get it right. Bring other people in to try to help you. And if you're getting it right, rejoice. Praise the Lord. The gospel is being rehearsed before a watching world and to the Father. He sees it. And it's precious to Him. Pray for help. Ask for wisdom. Look to Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. And soon enough, our marriages will no longer be pictures. And we will see Jesus and be with Him forever. And enjoy Him forever. Let's pray and ask Him for help. Lord Jesus, You, the great Bridegroom, You have made us Your own. And so may we submit to you. We confess that it's hard, Jesus. But we trust that you're a good husband and you have our best interests in view. Father, I pray for the wives and their difficult tasks. May they see the great privilege and responsibility. And Lord, may they uh, gladly even in strength follow the Christian leadership of their husbands. And may we husbands love our wives and sacrificially give ourselves up for them, washing them in the water of the Word so that we might present our wives in the fullness of splendor to You. And Lord, we know that we can do none of this were it not for the gift of Your grace and the power of Your Spirit. And so we do not trust ourselves to just try harder. We trust You to work in us, in the church, for the sake of Your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.